Hello there. We're trying to keep Coral Chihuahua going, and so we draw your attention to the possibility of listening to us on Patreon for just a few quid a month. This also magically gets rid of the ads. That's Patreon with an E, patreon.com forward slash Coral Chihuahua. On with the app. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. We're back with Coral Chihuahua. Day up down, day up down. Ooh, new jingle, nice. Our guest today is a singer who I met all the way back in 1996. She was fresh out of university and on hearing her sing, it was immediately apparent here was someone who had everything required to make it to the top. She has not disappointed. With a career which takes her to concert platforms, recital halls and operatic stages quite literally all over the world. She's the go-to soprano of choice for conductors in repertoire ranging from Bach and Purcell to Brahms and Mahler, with numerous awards for her ever-expanding discography. A diva, in the best sense of the word, with a healthy, no-nonsense approach to the business, who agrees with Clint Eastwood's advice to take your job seriously, don't take yourself seriously. Welcome to Coral Chihuahua, Carolyn Sampson. <laughs> Thank you. Good morning. Lovely to have you with us. We're going to dive straight in with a track. Harry, this was your choice, so maybe you'd like to introduce this for us. Yes. Hi, Carolyn. It's so great to have you on this programme. Um, yeah, this is actually our Messiah recording from November 2007. I mean, you sang in the group many, many Messiahs all over the world, but this is you as a soloist, and my goodness me, you get around these semi-quavers like nobody's business. Uh, this is Rejoice Greatly. <laughs> Thank you. 
Rejoice greatly from part one of Messiah. Today's guest, Carolyn Sampson with the 16 and Harry Christophers. I love that little extra B flat held on in the uh, in the bass line there. Quirky, isn't it? It is great. Carolyn, fleet of foot as always. Lovely to hear you there. Um, Harry, you remember your first meeting with Carolyn? I do, actually. Carolyn, you were still at university. I think, was, I think you're probably in your last year. Mm. And it was one of those, I did very few of them, but I did one of those kind of workshops for MEMF, Midlands Early Music Forum. And there you were, I, don't, I think it might have been Purcell King Arthur, I can't remember. But it was Diocletian. It was Diocletian, right. And there you were. And I, I, honestly, your, your, your face, your infectious laughter and everything like that. And I, and I knew you know, there was something special there. But I think it was a few months after that. And I remember phoning up Jeff Skidmore and saying, look, tell me more about this, this young lady, Carolyn Sansa, because she's, I think she might be pretty good. And Jeff said, yeah. Very good. And uh, I think it was about, I mean, I was trying to look through when, when you very, very first sang for the 16, but I found a CD the other day, which was 1993, Carver. Uh, but I think you sang before that. Yes. So I was at Birmingham <laughs> 92 to 95, but we're having a bit of a, you oh. know, we met at eight, we met at seven yes. moment because you're right. I was still in, still at Birmingham and I saw that you were doing this thing and I was like, oh, Harry Christopher's because um, <laughs> oh <dear. laughs> when I was doing A-level music, one of our set works was Dixit Dominus Handel. And um, the recording that I listened to over and over again was, was yours. Uh, so I was very excited that you were coming to Birmingham. So I signed up for this thing and, um, and I remember doing it. I think I even was very brave and came up to you on the you day did. and said, I'd love to come and audition for the choir. And then I came down and auditioned. I didn't know, obviously, that you'd spoken to Jeffrey in between. Um, but that was quite soon after. But in my head, then what happened was I did an audition and I can't even remember what I brought. But then you made me sight read um, the <sighs> Shepherd Liberanos. And then a couple of weeks later, somebody pulled out of a project and you asked whether I could come and step in at the last minute. And that was Samson. Oh, yes. In Santiago. In Santiago, oh dear, yes. And that, and it was one of those hit and run jobs where it was just come down, rehearse, fly out on the day, do the gig, fly back. You know, we were sort of there for less than 24 hours. Um, and that was my first um, appearance with the 16. And it was an all-night bar as well. I, do, I seem to remember. Oh, dear. Yeah. <laughs> but actually, I just looked at that recording. And Carver CD, it was January 1994. And uh, you sang on that. 
CD. So there it is. Because yeah, I thought all black that and white there. business happened in 1995. Ah. At the other end of the extreme, Robert, uh, good morning. Welcome to you. Good morning, good morning. Uh, and extraordinarily, just chatting before we started recording here, it turns out that you and Carolyn have never actually met. No, although I feel I know her very well because I spent the last 30 minutes watching on repeat the issue of uh, the uh, images of her getting into a pond. Uh, <laughs> for, for that... For that disc um, uh, of Schumann with with Joseph Middleton, where you recreated the Millet uh, uh, image of Ophelia, and there you are in full concert dress, getting into a freezing cold pond. And you see the camera; everyone can see this because your pinned tweet on Twitter. Uh, and and as you get in, they they cut just before what looks to be an enormous scream as the cold completely <laughs> envelops you. No, I've only, uh, we've, we've not met, but I've heard you twice. And, and I think the thing about what I heard was one of the things that people will find most difficult to understand outside the UK in that one of the occasions was you singing Semele at ENO. There you were, fill the hall. And then a couple of weeks later, you were singing the most intimate Dowland lute songs um, at Wigmore Hall. And, uh, and Eamon mentioned Mahler. And it's very easy, those words trip off the tongue, you know, a huge repertoire. But vocally, the sort of flexibility that allows you to do that, I can't think of many other people that can, that can cope with that range. Of, I mean, people say they do, but when, when you sang those, those, uh, those, was it Dowland at the Wigmore uh, with Matt Wadsworth? It, possibly, it, was, yeah. it was so intimate. Uh, and I thought, how can this be the same singer that just filled ENO a couple of weeks before? Huh. Yeah, it's funny. It sort of struck me as well in the last couple of months because obviously we've all had um, a bit of a, a shock this year and and a lot of unwished for time off. Hmm. Uh, and I've been one of the fortunate ones who did end up in September with a recital at the Wigmore with Matt Wadsworth Um doing doing a, an intimate loop program and then I was also lucky enough to be at Oxford Leader in October singing a piece that had just been written for me by Cheryl Francis Hode um, mm. so it really is the full breadth and um, I but said technically technically how how does that work I mean Eamon was referring to this in an, an issue of an issue on technique a few weeks back that do you feel, I mean, are, are you, do, you, do you feel that it's very different or is it just such a focus on the music that you don't have to think about it? Both. I do feel that it's different and it takes me a couple of days to get mm. one zone into another, I would say. Ideally, of course, the way things work, it's not always that one has the luxury of time uh, in between uh, programmes, but... It is different, and I find that I, I really couldn't be faced with a Bach cantata and sing it with the same uh, range of colour that I would use for Strauss. It just doesn't compute. So I think equally, although, yeah, they're different things, but the music does, as you say, it kind of takes over and dictates what seems appropriate. But, of course, there's also the fact that if you sing, for example, Messiah with a period instrument, band it will also influence the way the way you sing and um if i'm mm. it with a symphony orchestra depending on the conductor and what they ask for it's it's likely to also have a slightly different um sound and and approach i mean hopefully still stylish but um but yeah so i think we all naturally absorb the style that's around us and the sound world that's around us as well it's just interesting because because technically 
you're clearly using the voice in a different way, but you're not, I suppose, just because you're very good at it. You're not thinking in, in you're not saying, well, today's a Bach day. So technically I will sing this day. Tomorrow's a Strauss day. And I will sing like that. It comes from the music. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And well, also the other thing is that I do feel very strongly, and this is one of my sort of hobby horse things, I'm very keen to get it in, uh, is that uh, singing is singing, good singing, good technique. I mean, we use the same technique. It's just that you're using different colours. You're choosing which colours to use. Um, and the other thing is that everyone should sing all music. And I don't need to sound like Jesse Norman when I sing Strauss, which is good because obviously that ain't going to happen. Um, and Can I just say that I don't think I should sing Strauss? <laughs> but you no, I'd like to hear it. You want to <laughs> give in to it? It's society's crime. <laughs> Carolyn, I can remember when, uh, for a short period of time, we were both in the choir of the Brompton Oratory, uh, and those Sunday morning uh, early rehearsals, which were, you know, quite often you'd be, we would be going in, you know, into church after having done a concert the night before it was difficult for me to even get onto the stave. Uh, and I used to listen to you and watch you just, it always looked effortless. And I remember you saying to me once that, uh, you know, this, the services there were great because it was, it was two hours of paid practice for you. It was all I could do to, you know, to get a sound out. Even back in those days, you were thinking about it from a technical point of view uh, and using those opportunities to, you know, to stretch yourself. Gosh, that's interesting. I don't remember saying that at all. Um, <laughs> but I believe you. Um, yeah, wow. I should just warn you, Carol, Eamon sometimes says things like that and you're left thinking, gosh, did I really say that? Because yeah. <laughs> you just have got the memory of an elephant. Is that what I it do is? have a very good memory for these sorts of things. Um, <laughs> Harry mentioned... Eamon, I was really pleased that you said when we met because I always think, but when did we actually meet? So if you say it's 1996, I believe you. And can you remind me what the name of your group was? That uh -huh. <laughs> I was hoping you weren't going to bring this up. <laughs> so yeah, well, we first met um, singing for Philip Cave uh, ah, in a concert with yeah. his group Magnificat in New College Chapel. Uh, I can remember it very clearly. And it was off the back of that, actually, that you very kindly recommended me to Jeff Skidmore. And that's how I started to sing with Ex Cathedra. Um, but it's funny that you should mention my group. We've got a little novelty for you here. Just have a listen to this uh, and see if you can uh, put a finger on what this is.
not quite recorded on a wax cylinder, but uh, it sounds like it's pretty close, doesn't it? <laughs> no, remember that? <laughs> so, um, hearing it through my computer, it's a bit hard to tell, but I do remember doing that duet programme with Sally Dunkley. That's correct, yeah. So that was Couperin's uh, Lauda Zion Salvatore back in 1997. Oh my I read that in New College Chapel. That's uh, yeah, your good self, Sally Dunkley. Uh, listeners might recall actually Sally mentioning singing in duets with you. Um, we Sally was our first guest on the show uh, some months back. Um, one Matthew Hall's playing harpsichord, uh, <laughs> and uh, a cellist called Adam Spires, who's uh, who's now a, a jazz cellist. Um, yeah, so that was with uh, with my group, the pretentiously named La Contenance Angloise, ah. uh, which is a term that refers more to Dunstable, but I thought we were an English group performing <laughs> French, French music. And I it thought sounded it sounded like, rather nice. sounded like English incontinence. Yes, I knew you were going to say that. That's why I was hoping we wouldn't bring it up. But anyway, look, we'll brush that aside. It's unmistakably you, Caroline, isn't it? Just, uh, just incredible. That's just a gorgeous sound. Wow. So I love doing all that French stuff, though, because that was also one of the things that um, that Jeffrey Skidmore was mm. was very keen on. And in fact, he helped me with my uh, final dissertation for my music degree by sort of shoving a load of treatises my way on vocal ornamentation in the French Baroque. I still have uh, your handwritten score of the edition you prepared of Three Motets by Henri Dumont. Oh, Remember those? So yeah. if you'd like a copy of those, I've still got them somewhere. I you know what, I came across them the other day and I don't think, <laughs> I don't think we ever actually performed them. Ah, <laughs> oh, well, look, there you go. There's a project to get our teeth into. Could you, <laughs> could you read them or were they typeset? No, it's not like, no, they're handwritten, Harry, but legible. Yeah, like, oh. No comparison to your, uh, your she, script. Cheeky so-and-so. Yeah. Carolyn, let's go back uh, sort of to the beginning, as it were. Uh, take us, just tell us a little bit about your school days. I mean, was there a musical tradition at your school? Uh, and if not, you know, where did you find your opportunities? You were, you were clearly very proactive if you're already signing up for, uh, you know, the Midlands Early Music Forum. Um, so what was going on at school? Well, I just, um, I don't know. I, ju I just sang. I always sang and played piano uh, started piano lessons when I was sort of six, seven, something like that. Um, and when I was 11, I took up the violin because I very much wanted to play in an orchestra. And I was awful at the violin, really, really bad. But because I could do music and I was musical, I sort of got away with it and I moved as though it looked as though I was quite convincing, I think. <laughs> um, Fake it till I you make useful. it. I think I was useful in an orchestra because I, I was quite on the ball and, and would play in the right place and that sort of thing. And in, it was only in the sixth form that uh, I did a Saturday morning music school thing in Bedford. And the teacher and the conductor of the choir was also the singing teacher. And she said, would I would I have singing lessons? And we couldn't afford it. So I said, sorry, can't do that. And she taught me for free for two years oh, in my sixth form. And in fact, her name's Mary Bainbridge. Her son, Phil as a trumpeter. Oh, yes. Wow. Yeah. There you go. So Phil's mum was my first singing teacher. And I still see her um, here in Bedford occasionally. And um, so she uh, has a lot to answer for. Um, and then I went to Birmingham, did a music degree because it was the thing that I was good at. And I thought I would probably be a music teacher. Didn't really have a plan, didn't think about it. 
And actually it was then Emma Preston Dunlop. And she was in the year, two years above me in Birmingham. And she said, you should come along and sing for Geoffrey Skidmore. So that brings us sort of to the point that we've already started talking about really. So, and that was amazing. That was a really good training. We'd do concerts every couple of weeks. I think one of my first performances with Ex Cathedra at the age of 19 was Monteverdi Vespers in Symphony Hall, which was brand new then. Absolutely terrifying. (laughs) Uh, You know, I mean, I'd never sung Monteverdi before. And it's so complex and in a way we take it for granted now. But yeah, so so things like those those experiences were were pretty formative and also constantly sight reading. I mean, Jeffrey's policy when you went to audition for Ex Cathedra was that you would just turn up 20 minutes before the rehearsal, the choir rehearsal on a Wednesday evening, which was at the University of Birmingham anyway. And you'd sing your piece and you'd sight read whatever they were about to rehearse. And the day I was doing it, they were rehearsing Les Nos by Stravinsky. Oh, just so that's why I had to sight read. And it's just, <laughs> I mean, it was great. It's in at the deep end. And, um, and that turned out to be a wonderful thing and an amazing start to what, what turned out to be a career. And once you'd, once you'd graduated from uni, I mean, you've talked about um, auditioning to Harry. Did, did you do the round of auditions um, you know, for other conductors? church work in london is a you know is a, is a great route in because you you meet a lot of other singers that way and uh you know recommendations come from that yeah the only other audition that i did and that was around the same time as going to sing for harry was um for stephen layton and polyphony but i think actually starting to sing for the 16 so early on meant that I was meeting, I mean, I remember meeting Andrew Carwood very early on. And then, as you say, Eamon, when we were, oh, mind you, hang on, was it Paddy? No, Andrew was before Paddy. At Andrew was before Paddy, yeah. Exactly. You... So it was Andrew that appointed me at the oratory. And before that, I sang at the Guards Chapel for a few months. But um, yeah, it, it, you're right. The minute you start uh, to meet people, it can happen quite quickly. Um, that you end up in this pool of singers. And if you're a, a competent sight reader, that's um, that's super helpful. Important to register, perhaps, the um, you just reeled off the name of a couple of London churches, that there's uh, a lot of professional, or there was, a lot of professional work in those uh, places you can sing through much of the week at, at London churches for m- extra services, memorial services, uh, weddings and the like. And, uh, and it's a good part of a living for a London professional singer. Absolutely. And that was... You know, I mean, when I think back to that time, we were working every day. We'd be singing every day, even if it was just one or two services, as you say, the extras, the weddings and funerals. But, but really, it really added up. And um, with the amount of choral work that was going on then. And Harry, I mean, the amount of recordings that that we were doing, I mean, with the 16, I seem to remember a time when we were doing about five a year. Yeah, if not more, actually. Oh dear, yes, it's crazy, really. But you know, it's it's a but after you know straight out of uni, it's. I remember you know coming out of Oxford and singing, sang at Westminster Abbey and BBC Singers and things like that. But the shock to the sister was suddenly singing six hours a day, practically six or seven days a week. It, it's amazing. But su- you know, I I mean, I suffered after about three months of that. I just couldn't sing at all. And I remember having to go to see a the top ENT specialist at. Uh, in the King's Road, who gave me a shot of cortisone to, uh, and it was it did the trick. But um, you know, you didn't need that. Uh, you just seemed to be 
able to sing every day, day in, day out, and your stamina was incredible. Yeah, I don't, and I, I, that's luck, you know, there's nothing, because I don't do anything to, <laughs> to support it, as you know, uh, as you but know, in those early days, yeah. you know, we, we, we were partying as well, it was, yeah. um, and it was glorious, and I suppose you can do that when you're young, I mean, I'm more careful um, these days in my advanced years, um, <laughs> um, I, <laughs> you know, I, I'm a bit more careful about picking my moments, really. Yeah, but did you have a natural, I mean, you said earlier about using the same technique for, for, for you know, whatever repertoire you're singing, because actually that basic technique is, has got to be there. But were you conscious early on that actually you had a pretty stable technique that maybe just needed needed a service every six months or something that, and you, you were able to build on that all the time? Um, I've never thought of it like that because I think when I sort of look back on how things have gone, I think I've been very lucky in that I've mostly been singing the repertoire that's been appropriate as I've gone through and as my voice has developed. So in fact, in those early days, um, singing in choirs, you know, my, it was a, it's a light, fairly high sitting voice. Um, I didn't have any problem singing without vibrato. It was all fairly natural and fairly easy and I didn't push. And it was interesting. I mean, I know Roddy, when he chatted to you all um, a month or two ago, he was also talking about uh, starting a bit later, you know, studying when he was around 30. And there's for some of us there's something to be said for biding our time and I wasn't in fact the only time I had vocal trouble was in my very first year at university when I had a teacher who was desperate for me to sing Verdi opera and that clearly wasn't 19 year old me no. I mean it it probably just isn't me <laughs> um but you know, and that that was the time when I got into a bit of trouble. So I think it's, you know, if there's a bit of advice for young singers, it would be to be patient. There is plenty of time and to sing what works for you at any given time and don't push because there I've been very lucky. And I, um, I think my technique has built around different kinds of music as I've started to sing them. Well, let's hear you, Carolyn, on one of these, uh, on a 16 recording from some years back. Harry, maybe you could introduce this one as well for us. Yes, this is Buxtehude, um, his wonderful cantatas, member Jesu Nostri. And this is his cantata number three there, Ad Manus, and it's the first major movement, Quid Sunt Plage. And uh, after it, uh, we may decide on who the other singers are.
That was Carolyn with uh, a, a, quite a few starry other people there. There's um, James Gilchrist, Robin Blaze, Simon Birchall and Libby Crabtree uh, on the uh, theorbo, the wonderful Liz Kenny. And that was Quidsunt Plage from the uh, third cantata of Membra Jesu Nostri by Buxtehude. Wonderful, expressive singing there, Carolyn. I, I'd say you've always had an innate sense of style. I mean, you talked about singing Monteverdi Vespers in Symphony Hall at the age of 19 and it, and it being completely new. But whenever I worked with you, you were always able to assimilate new ideas extremely quickly. Uh, and that's a skill that makes a conductor's job so much easier uh, <laughs> and makes you extremely employable. Um, I think a lot of uh, younger listeners and younger singers would be interested to learn that you didn't do a postgrad, uh, any postgraduate study. Um, you went pretty much straight into work from university. Um, and I suppose then there, there maybe there wasn't the need. But have you ever wished that you had or did you feel that you the, there were ways that you might have benefited had you done so? Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think there's no one path that's right for everybody and because i i mean i never had a plan still don't <laughs> mm -hmm. and um i've always just sort of gone with with what's happened so yes yeah, so i fell out of university into the arms of the 16 and other choirs and so it didn't really happen the thing that i feel i would have gained and and that it would have been useful to have would have been the benefit of regular lessons, regular coaching. Yes, things like song repertoire, because when I came to song, which was sort of a bit later, really, I only sort of started doing recitals in earnest about 10 years ago, I suppose, 10, 12 years ago. And I found I just don't know any repertoire. I, just, I rely on other people to help me out there. So I suppose I feel that I've if I'd had a conservatoire experience, I'd maybe have, have just got some repertoire under my belt and have an idea where my heart lay. I mean, you say you haven't, you hadn't sung a huge amount of, uh, uh, you know, song repertoire, but you've certainly made up for that over the last few years. So your recital work has, has escalated on a, in a huge way. And, uh, you know, in some ways, it seems to be at the forefront of the work you're doing at the moment. Yeah, I love it. I love it actually. It's um, there's so much. There's so many amazing songs to sing, and um, I find that I I want to do them all. You know, busy, busy. <laughs> um, and Joseph Joseph Middleton, um, with whom I work pretty much exclusively. I mean, we're always we've got so many ideas. we and and so many wonderful programs that we want to share. So that's that's really exciting, and we're very lucky in that. The record company BIS are very supportive, um, have been very supportive of me for a long time. And uh, we can get a lot of those recordings realised. Well, I've been enjoying catching up with some of your uh, recent recordings in preparing for our chat today. As you say, there's a huge amount to choose from. Um, I was interested to hear you say earlier that, you know, at one stage in your life, you were thinking about being a French teacher. And of course, I met you uh, performing French Baroque music, uh, and you've done an awful lot of that with, with Jeff Skidmore as well. You seem to have a real affinity with French. Yes, I, I like the language very much. I mean, I like all languages, actually, and I just think that... I, I mean, I don't think I wanted to be a French teacher because I was particularly good at it, but just I liked it. And since then, I've also spent uh, 10 years living in Germany, so 
Yes, I, I enjoy language generally and the way the sounds are made and the colour that they give the music. Well, we're going to hear you now uh, in a track from Debussy's Ariette Oublié. This is the fifth song, Green. Well, that is quite something. Et que je dorme peu puisque vous reposez while you sleep or while you rest. Uh, with Joseph Middleton playing there. Uh, ah, Carol, these are such colours. You so often hear people singing leader and they're singing the whole time. And actually, you mentioned, you mentioned Roddy and I was watching him in his English version, the Jeremy Sams version of Winterreiser recently. And at some time... Uh, some moments in it it was just so visceral and it wasn't about a recital it was about these I mean that was his point that singing in English gave, allowed him to access certain emotions and just hearing you with those words there it, it just seems like a gentle caress rather than a piece of singing good thank you um, I... <laughs> that's such a short answer and such a better answer than my long question I mean do you enjoy <laughs> recording is this is this something that you can that you can ever make feel natural like a performance I, I like recording very much. I think sometimes there are things you can get away with in a recording hmm. that you can't get, get away with in a performance. Although I, I'm a fan of risk taking. And I think, in fact, with that Verlaine disc, for example, that that um, track's taken from, uh, we went through the first edit, Joseph and I, and we said it's almost too clean. It was almost, we wanted more of the colour and perhaps the odd slightly blue note um, mm. than everything being perfectly in tune because it was more expressive. 
that's appealing because that's more human and then perhaps you can relate to it better. I don't necessarily need perfection. Yeah, absolutely. We were talking about the, uh, well, in fact, after the, the, the issue on recording came out last time, someone was tweeting, well, my music teacher could never go to live recordings again. Uh, sorry, could never go to uh, performances again after the CDs came out because he wanted that level of perfection. And I just thought, gosh, that's dead yeah. at that stage. You need the risk. It needs to be feeling that it could be live. All those, yeah. you know, those live recordings we've listened to, those moments on, oh, I used to listen to a lot of Fischer Disco. And he would absolutely take risks. It was a, it was a, a poetry recital, really. I get um, a bit cross about is when... Uh, you get a CD of a live recording. It's billed as a live recording. And in fact, what's happened is that they've done one performance and then patched the next day. And I always feel that's a bit of a shame because I think if we're going to do a live recording, then we should sort of own it. And of course, it's something that we're all confronted with very much at the moment, with everything being streamed. And that's a different beast again, I think. But, uh, but I... You know, I think if it's a live recording, then that's, you know, there are going to be mistakes and that's fine too. Yeah, I think, I mean, it is, nothing can ever replace live performance in, in, in my opinion. But, you know, the thing about recording, it's a fantastic second best. And, uh, but for me, and I think you probably agree with that, Carolyn, that actually that feeling of an audience behind you there is 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 such an important part of our 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 work um and i i totally agree with you about you know on a recording there's got to be a human side to 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 any performer that comes through on a recording so that odd slightly duff note may not be quite in tune or thing but the but the performance is what is important mm, yes and i mean you know the nice thing about as a recording is of course that we can make sure that all the notes are correct correct yes perfect not necessarily Carolyn in contrast to uh, certainly to Harry and myself uh, and Robert I'm not sure about you but you've lived you lived abroad in Germany for a number of years um, and I'm just wondering what influence that that's had on you as a musician um, you know did it broaden your horizons and certainly music making on continental Europe is is very different uh, in the way they approach you know rehearsal time and, and budgets um, <laughs> yeah what what did you what came out of it for you um the thing i would say i mean i was living there not necessarily working there any more than i had been before so uh, we all work in europe a lot and as you say there is there is that difference of usually having more rehearsal time i think the thing that i found very useful working a lot with the freiburg baroque orchestra was that we'd often be working without a conductor. Sorry, Harry. Um, and then I learnt to be more assertive about what I wanted from the music. And obviously, when you're a soloist working with a conductor, there's also a certain amount of negotiation to go on uh, in terms of how how the music's to be shaped and um and all that sort of thing but it was very interesting working then basically with the leader of the orchestra and i learnt not to apologize for what i thought about the music or not to apologize for asking for it sometimes and um so uh i think i learned that also on a personal level actually i uh the germans are generally more direct it's just very simple it's it's a, a very straightforward 
um, concept that it's okay to say what you think and that that's not necessarily aggressive or contrary. It's just putting forward your opinion. <laughs> we were we were talking about that in uh, referring to recording a couple of weeks ago in that everyone in, in England, people don't say what they mean a lot of the time. And that's fine if you're sort of English and you work with that because you know what the person means when they don't say what they mean. But if you're working in the States or in, in Europe, it's quite different. And I remember having to, to I remember finding this working with the Netherlands Chamber Choir, actually, the first time I did that back in the 90s, and that people would come up to you and they would say what you think. And if that happened in England, you'd feel terribly upset that someone would be so... But actually, you you can take it and you can you can fight back and you can stand your corner and it's a good discussion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the, the Fibre Brock Orchestra thought it was absolutely hilarious the time I was there with Trevor Pinnock. And, you know, he would say, well, Carolyn, you know, I wonder whether we could try doing it. What do you think about doing it this way? And I go, well, yes. <laughs> couldn't really Rockets, no. yes. And then, you know, they were just sort of watching in astonishment, <laughs> extraordinary dancing around each other in order to, yes. to a, come to a point, you know. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> so what's the ballet term for that? Passadeur or something, yes. <laughs> It's a bit less elegant, probably. We've talked a lot about your your concert work and and your recital work, uh, Carolyn. Uh, let's just touch on on opera for a moment. So you've sung principal roles at English National Opera, Glyndebourne, Scottish Opera, and, and numerous countries. Uh, sorry, numerous companies abroad. Um, I, I'm just wondering, you know, how you feel about it currently. I mean, not in relation to you know the COVID pandemic, but. Uh, it's you know so many young singers who I meet place so much emphasis uh, on opera as being their the sort of all-consuming passion and and the thing that they've got to to focus on. I think it's really good to see a, a hugely successful singer for whom it's a part of your repertoire, but not an all-consuming focus, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, I love opera. Um, I also wouldn't want to do it all the time. Um, and I think, I mean, to be honest, again, to a young singer, I'd say the smart thing is to do as much of a variety of, of work as you can. And of course, that's not always simple, but, um, you know, and certainly right now, it's stood me in pretty good stead. If your passion is opera and you know that's what you want to do, fine. Um if you're doing it because you're more likely to be a star, which is probably true, you know, the sort of, if you're looking to be on some sort of fictional top, <laughs> <laughs> top of your game, top of the singing world, I don't know, then yes, opera tends to be where um, the starriness happens, I suppose. But I, I, I would say then, you know, again, go for it if that's what you want. But um I think in terms of having a an intelligent career, it's nice to have as much variety as possible. And I wouldn't want to give up the early music that I do. I wouldn't, I mean, opera for me as well, I should add, is that since having my children, I mean, my son mm. 12 now, um, my daughter's nine, and I found that opera for me is less practical just by virtue of the fact that I came to the conclusion that I would only say yes to something if it was really something that I felt passionate about because for me to essentially be away from home for two months it it has to be something extraordinary and 
So the last thing I did was um, Pelias and Melisande at Scottish Opera in 2017. And I, you know, I hope that won't be the last opera I ever do. But on the other hand, if it is, then it was the most extraordinary experience. I mean, years ago, I would get numerous offers from Fire Harrison Parrot to do operas in the States. And, you know, it's it's six weeks production, then you're there for another two months of things. And it's just impossible. And mm. as you say, with young, a young family, three months away, is, is just not workable, which is really interesting. But actually, one thing that came out when you were talking about opera, um, one thing Eamon mentioned earlier when chatting to you was about, did you do a postgrad? And uh, of course, um, you know, where did you learn your opera craft? You, you clearly were learning it with every production you were doing. Because if I remember rightly, just after we recorded that Buxtehude back in 2000 was when we did Papaya at the Collie with, at ENO with uh, the wonderful Stephen Pimlot yeah. directing. And you did Amour there. And, uh, and I think you found that really interesting, particularly because you had the chance to work with Stephen Pimlot, who was a legendary uh, director and was very keen on stagecraft. It is the case that we learn with every production we do and, and well, you know, every experience we have. But um, uh, I was very fortunate as I was growing up in in Bedford to be a member of Bedfordshire Youth Opera. It's it's one of those things that's a real tragedy of all the, um, the cuts to local council budgets is that things like Bedfordshire Youth Opera, I mean, even then, and this is, you know, 30 years ago goodness me um they would sit us down at the end of each summer we'd do a four-week stint three weeks rehearsal and a week of shows every summer and they said to us they would sit us down on the last day before the last show and say we don't know if we'll be here next year but you know you're all amazing and go and have a fab year and we'll see you let's let's hope we'll be back and we do we did Carmen we did um, Offenbach, Orpheus in the Underworld, we did Die Fledermaus, Magic Flute. You know, I sang Queen of the Night. Um, oh, wow. Is it a recording? Oh, <laughs> oh, not on cassette. Oh, dear. <laughs> you know, well, actually, I don't know. I know there, is, there is a DVD of our Marriage of Figaro with me as Susanna, Rachel Nichols as Countess, and Becky Batoni as Carabino. Oh, no wow. way. That's yeah. amazing. <laughs> That's well, that needs to find its that needs to find its way on somewhere. Look, uh, one one question. Uh, so to to have done those things so early, fascinating. But are there still musical things that you really want to do that you haven't done yet? I suppose. I mean, thinking about opera, there are a couple of things I'd love one day to do: Carmelite, Poulenc, Le Carmelite. I should say properly. You know, a little secret wish to do the Marshallin and Rosencavalier. Wow. Um, oh, wow. Goodness. But, you know, we'll see. I, I don't know. My uh, Something that I feel very strongly about at the moment is, um, is new music. And I'm in the process of commissioning uh, some songs for a special album, which that will, will be my hundredth as a as a soloist my recording and so what I'm doing is I'm asking composers to take a personal song and be inspired by it and create something new for us um, wonderful so that's really exciting and I I really believe that we should be pushing new music as much as possible can you let us know who some of those composers are or not under wraps is it no it's not 
under wraps i already have a song actually from stephen huff who oh fantastic uh, known as pianist cheryl francis hode has written one um i've got some wonderful people on it um nico muley daniel kidane um caroline shaw oh wonderful uh oh a few i'm i'll be forgetting loads of wonderful important people roderick williams Gosh, that sounds absolutely absolutely marvellous. So it's the one thing we haven't heard you sing on this program, Purcell. And yeah. are these are these songs going to be accompanied by with piano, or will they be lute songs with a modern with a modern twist? Well, the bulk of them uh, will be with guitar. Uh, sorry, the bulk of them will be with piano, because also the the point of it is really that Joseph and I wanted a few more options of songs that we can do personal songs that we can do in recital and obviously we always go back to the britain arrangements the tippet um realizations uh and we just wanted to add to that really and um have some 21st century options but um uh sean Schieber will also be involved uh we're hoping for one or two for guitar and very possibly uh, something with string quartet as well. Oh wow! Can't wait, blimey! Yeah, great. Exciting. Something to look forward to, and nice to have a uh, a positive project to look forward to. Carolyn, lovely to have you with us today, and you've led us very uh, fluently into our final track, uh, which is you singing um, from wonderful new recording or recent recording of Purcell's King Arthur uh, with the Gabrielle Consort and Paul McCreish. This is you singing Fairest Isle. Carolyn, thanks for joining us. Thank you.
Cool Chihuahua is brought to you by Eve Agilini and the Sixteen, and produced by Perseus the Sixteen, Eve Agilini and Polyphonic Films. It's supported using public funding by the National Lottery through Arts Council England. Thanks to all of you who are using the link in the programme description to make a small donation to the making of these, by the way. Um, and what we haven't yet had is a choir sponsoring an episode. So if your choir enjoys the show, do be in touch through either ensemble. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Just before you go, another reminder to try listening on Patreon, which costs just a few pounds per month. Or, if you prefer, you can very simply make a one-off donation. You can actually do either via coralchihuahua.com. Thanks. <laughs>